Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Sam Amadon, and I'm, it's my great honor to be here with celebrating David Mitchell and his book, Utopia Avenue. Hello, David. Hello, everyone tuning in across the world. Um, I'm David Mitchell, and it's my great pleasure uh, to be speaking with my friend Sam Amidon uh, about, uh, amongst other things, this book, which I just happen to have a copy of, uh, lying oh, next to me here, Utopia Avenue. <laughs> and um, we'll be talking about a few things today. Uh, and uh, I also know we've got a really treat in store um, with three songs, including one world premiere from uh, The Other Gentleman on your screen. Uh, so with no further ado, Sam, if you like, we can jump straight in. All right, David. So I, I loved the book so much. I just devoured it. And I Thank felt you. like, you know how I read somewhere there was a thing, a thing about when you read a book that, that it was about somebody talking about a book they read and they felt like it was reading them. And that is what I felt when I was reading oh, Utopia Avenue. It was like wow, there were constantly wow. little details that happened to be things I was thinking about two days before or, you know, it was such a such a beautiful experience. So I wanted, oh, I wanted to know something about it, which is we often talk about writing being rewriting. You've talked about that. Mm -hmm. And 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 so and the, the, the rewriting process of writing. And I'm curious if anything went wrong while you were writing this book, like if there was any stage around that. And if so, you know, what did you do to, take sure. to fix that? If so? Well, for quite a while, it felt like nothing was going right with it. I'd, I'd, <laughs> uh, I'd, uh, I started two or three times, uh, got about 30, 40, 50, 60 pages in and thought, uh, yeah, this is my eighth, ninth book now. So uh, I'm used to this. This does happen every time. I'm no longer worried by it. But it is a it, it is a part of the process, and it's a question of um, working out why your act of going wrong is happening, and what that can tell you about going right. So, uh, for example, earlier on, uh, I think I was playing it too much for comedy. Uh, the shadow of Spinal Tap falls a very long way, and uh, oh, there's a sort of grooved-in <clears throat> narrative for. Uh, for a rock and roll band it's 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 uh the that narrative is stuffed full of sitting comedic ducks that you can just take shot at and that's great for 100 pages but uh it's it but essentially it's a cartoon and as you know all of the best cartoons are short uh and it wasn't going to work for a novel then then i had a i i had the idea of trying to write it um, like one of these music books where uh, I read a really good one by Dylan Jones, I think, about David Bowie, where he, it, it's, the composition of the book is essentially uh, an act of interviewing everybody that mm. David Bowie ever knew, from the first landlady, from the first English teacher, all the way through to the last violinist who, laid yeah. down a track for, for, for his final album um, and everyone in between. Uh, I thought that could be cool um, to try to tell a band, to tell the story of a band, not by interviewing the people because they're no longer here, but by interviewing all the people who knew them. Again, it's a great idea in theory, but um, uh, it sort of imploded under the weight of artifice. Um, every little detail had to be made up and there was no way to prioritise where you had to sit up and pay attention and where you could switch off a little bit like you do in those music books. Um, so you were trying that, to do like a fictional oral history or kind of? Yes, exactly uh -huh. so. Um, which should work. It sounds like it would be great, but it really wasn't, or at least the way I went about it uh, wasn't. So then I, I was also hitting the problem of uh, the fictionality of the band. Um, why should you care about these non-existent people who care about non-existent music that isn't actually real yet? Uh, and, uh, of course, that old aphorism about um, dan um, writing about music is like dancing about architect, uh, is like dancing about architect 
architecture, which is attributed to many different people. It, it, um, it even has a Wikipedia page about who said it first. And, and, and of course, that's a complex page because even the phrase has evolved over time. But it's really true. Uh, or at least it, it does encapsulate rather niftily the idea that uh, music and writing are inherently contradictory. Um, they're somehow opposites, not polar opposites, but opposites of a type um, in a kind of constellational way, if that's even a word. And so there's a paradox in, in the exercise. I'm using words, ink squiggles on a page or pixels on a screen to try to replicate or convey this wordless, transcendent, sublime experience of music, which is made of molecules vibrating in the air, that they're inherently not the same thing at all. Uh, so how could I do that? And um, the answer sort of, once I came upon it, was actually the route out of the tangle of misfires and missteps and misstarts, which was to try to strong arm or mobilize or shunt every component of what a novel is these being character plot theme style structure um into the closest musical form that they could be uh it was different in each case but say with structure which is a big one especially when you're trying to turn the amoeba blob of a novel you haven't written yet into something that has a skeleton, uh, into a book that is written. Uh, the structure, obviously, uh, is what everything hangs on and hangs off. And uh, so I had the idea of making the book structured like three albums that the band record. And instead of chapters, there are songs. Mm. And uh, the songs are written by the point of view character during the duration of that chapter. And so later on in the book, they refer to that chapter, the same title, for example, Mona Lisa Sings the Blues, as a song uh, that then become, that, that then discuss and perform later on in the band's life. Uh, with characters, they're musicians, uh, they'll be plausibly thinking about music and as I do and am, uh, trying to work out exactly what it is and how it works. Uh, to have bus conductors or, or gardeners or, or dentists or mercenaries thinking about this subject too much would seem to be a bit of a stretch, but you can get away with it when it's musicians or people in the music business. Uh, the plot, obviously, the rise and not quite fall, but uh, the rise of a band up the wobbly ladder of stardom. Um, and what they find towards the top. And then, of course, I had to provide a reason why, um, uh, why when we talk about the kinks and the who and the stones and uh, small faces, we don't also talk about Utopia Avenue. Um, because I wanted, sort of in reaction to my initial spinal tap, uh, uh, wrong turning, uh, I wanted to play it absolutely straight, uh, as if they really were a band. Uh, and be quite insistent that they were real. And uh, rarely have I been happier in the last few months than when my e when my American publicist sent a few emails from people who had asked her, um, Utopia Avenue, kind of, are they actually real? I just want to check. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, so that's a big, long, rambling kind of an answer to your question, Sam, but that's kind of it. And was this, I'm curious if was the 60s, the, that whole environment of London in that very specific, you know, late 60s moment, was that one, the, was that always your thing or would, was your first thought more just the general concept of the challenge of writing a book, of, of, a book about, a, you know, of, of fictional music in a way? They were inextricably intertwined because the music of that era, as you know, just there's a, there's a bit of a magic window opens in 60. Six and kind of shuts again. Uh, it was so symbiotic with what was happening in the culture. Um, the world is always changing. It's always evolving, as we've seen this year, but also, as we've seen this year, sometimes that evolution becomes rather revolutionary. It becomes really visible. Uh, uh, and, and, and these big the 
subterranean currents of change sometimes just burst through the surface and geezer up and you can see them from a mile away and they'll dominate the history books like 1812, 1848, 1914. They sometimes coincide with wars, but not necessarily. Um, and those years culturally, I think, uh, creatively, um, perhaps particularly for music, they become they became just visibly pyrotechnic. Um, mm. When Sergeant Peppers came out, and this relates to a question I want to ask you later, but it, it's, it's as if the album was born. This whole new art form, not quite new, but mm. an album was no longer a container for songs. It was an art form. It became a narrative. It was this journey. It was a trip you could go on, go down, go through, uh, the way the songs were sequenced. Um, and it seems to make everybody up their game and fairly three-star acts suddenly put out four-star mm. albums or four-and-a-half-star albums or, or, or albums with certainly five-star passages on. And then just the, the, the interaction with what was happening on the streets in 68, uh, uh, the marches, the demonstrations, all the things we're familiar of from... Uh, Pathé newsreel footage of that time, um, the way that would feed into music and 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 say, um, I think you know more about this than me, but there's a police riot in California, Buffalo Springfield right for what it's worth, kind of on Sunday, and it's in the charts, uh, and sort of it's it's in the shops and in the charts by the middle of the week after. It was sort Amazing. of that quick. Uh, and and then of course there's the fashion and the clothes and 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 and, and this notion of Soho as um I've used this phrase a lot recently but uh, Brian Eno's word genius the idea that genius isn't enough you also need a scene for the genius to operate in and it takes on almost a kind of sentience and and an identity of itself of its own uh, it, it's not just the highly creative songwriters. It, 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 it's the cheap recording studios in, grin, in grungy basements. It's the coffee bars that opened up that, that, were in, uh, that were free of the licensing laws that pubs had to adhere to, but they needed something for kids who were hopped up on coffee and maybe um, black bomber pill, pills as well. Uh, to, they needed something to do in the middle of the night, which creates a market for musicians to... It, it, it's it's a market stall for them to ply their wares, which attracts session musicians who can do things that you can't do to put on your record. And there's Denmark Street just around the corner who can monetize all of that, as we would now say. Uh, so you need the scene. Uh, you need the bars for them to meet and mingle. You need um, drug dealers for them to, to get the narcotic enhancements uh, which those who would indulge in uh, such substances so they could get hold of them etc 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 so it was just an irresistible time uh, and if you're going to write about well I mean you could write about music in any era you wish of course you can uh, but uh, there was it, it was a bit of an open goal that I couldn't resist yeah. now we've been talking about music uh, effortless segue coming up uh, speaking of music uh, um so I spent four years trying to do my damnedest to write about it, all the while feeling envious and conscious of the fact that however well I might manage to work out in terms of writing about it, uh, I can't actually do what you can do effortlessly simply by picking up a guitar and... Uh, Doing your thing, Sam. So, oh, oh, a guitar. Did I say guitar? Good heavens. Good heavens. Uh, I think there's a button you need to press, which you won't let me get. So, Thank you. Uh, if you'd like to introduce this, this, this majestic thing that you're about to play for us, please, Sam. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for reminding me of the button. Um, so, yeah, this is, a, I'll do a song that's from the, that's from Mississippi John Hurt and uh, the great blues singer and guitarist and, um, this would have been found in the Harry Smith Anthology of American Folk Music, which became a real Bible for 
a lot of the folk revival in the 60s, but also a lot of the music that then fit, fed into the world of Utopia Avenue and, and that psychedelic universe. Uh, it's called uh, Spike Driver Blues. quote Moana uh, in the film Moana the picture uh, the Pixar film yeah like, you have a kid the right age you know what I'm talking about Maui 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's be- 
And all those pictures in the video are Harry Smith and my drawings of Harry Smith himself, who was this mad eccentric figure who did, he collected all the, it's kind of relevant to your book because his, his interest was all the mysterious lost forms of human culture and contact, whether it's the string games that he's doing at one point or uh, like paper airplanes. He had like a large paper airplane collection. And of course, all his folk songs. And I believe he resided in the Chelsea Hotel where... Um Exactly. Is where Jasper, Elf, Dean and Griff, when they go to America as Utopia Avenue to try and uh, make a name for themselves in North America, uh, it's 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 the only place they have a big party. stop in New York. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they pass, I'm sure they pass by his, uh, knowingly or not, his, um, his room there in the Chelsea Hotel where apparently he had all of his priceless records and a bunch of parakeets flying around shitting on top of them. Open record. <laughs> uh, I thought about putting him in, but uh, but 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 um, but that part of the book was getting as stuffed with cameos as my turkey is at Christmas. No, there's some so, good uh, ones in there. I love that. In that particular well, well, moment, well, I love those. Well, well, thank you very much. I don't want to give them away. I don't know what's allowed to be given away or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, was it fun well, writing all those? Oh yeah, yeah. It must have been a, yeah. a blast. Um, it was. Um, that's but also one of those things where um, a blast with a sense of responsibility. These were real people. Uh, they have kids who are living. Yeah. Uh, all of them have shuffled off this mortal coil. Uh, that there's there's obviously good. Uh, I, I, I had it on good legal advice that there's good reasons <laughs> to do that. Uh, however, their kids are still alive. And uh, and how would I like it if someone wrote a, if someone put my dad in a novel and just did what the heck they wanted with him. Uh, or my mum. And so I didn't want to get into alternate biography, uh, a whole new chapters of their life, but nor did I want them to just be a passing name. Uh, I've now got a little thing coming up, your internet connection you're isn't back, stable, which looks quite ominous, but yeah, great. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, so they need to be there for a reason. Uh, and the reason was to change the trajectory of the scene. That was my guiding principle. Mm. Uh, if they, um, what they do, what they say, what they are, it just changes the trajectory of the scene, but not of the book, not of the character's life. Um, so that was sort of the, the Goldilocks, cool. just right kind of size that I was after, uh, which, doesn't quite segue seamlessly into my first question for you, Sam, but it kind of does as well, uh, just with your voice still echoing in my ears. Um, do you become someone else when you sing? Uh, are you the same? So when you pick the guitar up and you do that, that we just saw, are you the same Sam who's talking to me now? Or is it like method acting? Or does it depend on the song? Or do you enter a kind of storytelling mode? Or, yeah, I mean, you're obviously not uh, a black guy from the deep south, right. uh, and you're uh, you're you're a folk singer. Uh, if we have to have a label, then it's that which is an interesting form of music because, of course, it is the whole point of folk music is it's reinterpreted and with with sort of by whoever happens to be singing it. Uh, mm. If it stays still, then it's just a museum piece. Um, would you say something about this in general? Um, I guess, question. are you the same you? That's a good question. I think, I mean, I think one thing that I definitely have experienced, like, like grew, as we were sort of talking about before, I was, you know, growing up hearing a lot of folk songs before I really heard, because my parents are, are great folk, folk musicians and folkies, um, I mostly heard albums of traditional, you know, people singing folk songs. So the whole idea of the singer-songwriter where you write a song and then perform it, you know, and perform the song that you wrote was something that I encountered much later. Even the first Bob Dylan album we had in the house was uh, World Gone Wrong, which is him doing all old folk songs. Wow. And so even Bob Dylan, I didn't even think of as a songwriter absurdly until I was like a teenager and people corrected me. And so... I guess that, and, and you know, and it's a nat natural thing about those folk songs, like like Mississippi John Hurt sings that song. He is a black man in the South, but there's many times in all those folk songs where, you know, female folk singers will sing a, man, a song from male gender or vice versa. And, you know, people inhabit all different characters. And uh, the whole thing when I've, you know, I have to be reminded that there's songwriters who are writing about, 
you know, their own sort of feelings. I think your feelings come into it, but it is, but it's not like acting at the same time because you're singing. So I don't know, I think there was, Almeida Riddle is an amazing ballad singer who I learned a lot of folk songs. And she said something, which is you have to get behind the song. And that always really struck me. And I think uh, in terms of when I sing, you know, you, you, you're sort of trying to get out of the way of the song. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, <laughs> get behind it. The closest I come to performing is is say at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. That's the only time I do have a stage and maybe a podium and maybe a, and and I'm reading. To be able to do it, I do have to become a slightly different version of me. Mm. I have to become more confident, more more of an extrovert, ever so slightly flirty. Uh, um, not insincere, because people can see through that, not inauthentic, not something I'm not, but but uh, but but a more performative version of me. Otherwise, I'd be too nervous to do it. I, I, I'm I'm and 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 my stammer would take over, and 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 I could and I'd block, and I couldn't actually do it. Uh, and so often, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this. But no, I um, think perform. I think it's true. Really I think performing is is like because um, it's the first time you step on the stage or whatever. It's it's just you know, and I think you grow and you grow that part. You know, and you, and I think the challenge is to grow that, as you're saying, is how to grow that part, but they can still feel natural up there. Yeah, yeah. I, I performed uh, from the age of like seven, and then there was a moment well, I was I mean, that, I never had stage fright because it started so early. I didn't know to be nervous, but I then had a phase right. around age 25 where I was sort of on stage just for like the millionth time, and I was like, "What are you doing? You're like all these people are staring at you, and you're stuck here for." another 45 minutes and, and and actually it was super terrifying and I had a couple of years where I had to sort of like no longer take it for granted and rethink what it meant to it, it sort of struck me for the first time ever like what I was doing and I was like utterly terrified and I sort of had to re-go it is a weird thing to do. I guess we need relationships with things that are not people in our lives so kind of we need relationships with money we need relationships with spirituality we need relationships with work but maybe for people who do this and, and, and way back in the midst of time when I was thinking when I was fantasizing about what I might want to be in the future uh, I, I quite like the idea of a novelist because I'd never have to speak in public yeah. I'd never have to do what I'm doing right now uh, sure so enough. I guess you also need a relationship with a public persona and yeah. it's not really automatic. You kind of have to think about it a little bit and yeah. work on it. Um, what we're doing right now, Zooming, uh, I haven't quite got this right yet. A part of my brain is it's just you and me chatting via uh, our tech, which we do from time to time anyway. Uh, and then another part of me is also aware, as I would be if I were on stage in Edinburgh, it, it, where it's blindingly obvious there, it isn't just me and the interviewer that uh, there's an audience as yeah. well. And I, I, I conceptually know the audience is there, but haven't quite got this right yet. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not sort of sure which, which version of me best fits the job in hand. Um, yeah. In terms of the attitude of the performer, I have to, I want to sneak something okay. in, which is the, it, I loved in Utopia Avenue when Elsa's gone to see Nina Simone and she re yeah. reports back on the experience of that show. Talk about a performer in terms of somebody who had a relationship to the audience where yeah. she, you know, just to not care. I'm sure yeah. she did care, but her presence was just to not care. And it, she quotes some great thing that sing, not sign or something. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually saw Nina Simone in, at Albert Hall in 1998. I was here, oh, wow. I'm American and I live, I live now in London, but I came yeah. over on a trip as a teenager. Yeah. And my friend and I went and saw her and it, I'll never forget it. It's sold out show, standing ovation. She's brought, you know, the band plays for 20 minutes and then she's brought up. People are standing and screaming and clapping and she sat on the piano and she goes, shut up. <laughs> the, whole, the whole Albert call just went totally silent. I was like, that's a performance. <laughs> you can get away with it if you're her. If I did it, you could just imagine. <laughs> There's some things that you, know, you just have to... It was power. You need a certain gravitas to pull yeah. off, and you also need to know what you can't manage as um, which uh, doesn't really segue whatsoever into my first official question for you from my uh, carefully prepared oh, plan here. But um, I like it. 
Uh, I do want to talk about your voice. Um, you've said that you didn't start singing seriously until a ripe old age, uh, relatively, you've told me in the past, and that when you did, your main influence was your primary instrument, which is the fiddle, I believe. Uh, do you think this is a widespread thing? Are some vocalists, say, like Elton John, are they piano-inflected vocalists because that's the home instrument? Uh, is, is, is Hendrix's vocal style discernibly forged by his, by his being, the guitarist who he was? Is it like owners, dog owners, who end up resembling their dogs? Or am I barking up the wrong tree? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> oh, I, I, I see, I see it. That's beautiful. I love that. No, it's a good question. And, and I, I love that you mentioned Jimi Hendrix there because... I think he is somebody whose voice is just so bound up in his guitar. And it's so incredible, you know, when you hear, when he's like, like when he's singing and playing bits of the melody, he somehow is able, I don't know how, nobody's ever figured out how to, I, he somehow is able to back himself up and he seems to be playing the melody along with himself while he sings. Mm. And it's all just happening in this zone of sound. And and his voice, his, the, the, the creative line from his voice, voice through his and his creativity through his hand on the guitar is just total fluidity and that's to me like just so powerful so yeah jimmy is somebody who i think does and and i know also that he was i've talked to engineers here in london who worked who'd worked when they were young on bits of his recordings and they said he was incredibly shy about his singing and that he had to be like alone in the vocal booth and just wow. nobody could be near it wow. but um that's a, yeah i think I mean, I and, I and I did sing in choirs and with my folks and stuff, but I never would have thought of myself as a singer or, or sung as a soloist until my well into my twenties. And as you said, I grew up playing mostly Irish fiddle tunes, and and Irish tunes, um, the tradition of Irish fiddle playing has a really ornament, really specific kind. I'm already doing, I'm doing my violin. <laughs> um, has this ornamented, uh, you know, in terms of phrasing, and yet yeah, so much of my, my phrasing comes from many Irish fiddlers, including this one named Tommy Peoples, but. That's a good question. Yeah, I have to think through. Um, and I think I like, I've because I don't think of myself as a singer, and many, so many of my heroes are not singers still, like Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he's a singer, but sorry, I don't know whether that happened. I'm back. The, um, he's, uh, because he's, uh, but also, you know, Miles Davis, who sang, I, th I think I love instrumentalists who, who found a vocal sound on their instrument. You know, Miles, when he plays those ballads, that's like, he's not taking a solo behind a singer. He is the singer. And, wow. and I've heard Bill Frizzell talk about that, the, the guitarist yeah. who, who we love, who, who says that he tries to play like a singer. And, and, and I think I go that I'm the other direction. I sing, but I'm, I'm often inspired by those people, those instrumentalists who figure out a way to sing through the instrument. Short qualified answer to my question then. It's, it's a cautious yes, completely depending upon who we're talking about. Uh, so there are almost uh, the, well. I think there are singers a vast who are like singers, taxonomy of vocalists. Like, like yeah. on there's there would be um, Billie Holiday who was like a singer fully. There's not connect, and yet yeah. in a way you could say that she's singing also. She's the equivalent of a master instrumentalist. You know, like what she does with her yeah. phrasing as a singer is like Lester Young or Miles or you know. So. I think it's different in each case, but I'm drawn to the singers who are connected to their instrument, like, like Jimi Hendrix. I love his singing. I think he's underrated, uh, underrated singer in a way. Uh, I was pleased to get him in. I was able to slip him into Utopia Avenue just a yes. little bit. The chronology was slightly working against me. He, he kind of, he, he exploded <laughs> in London out. slightly before, uh, before I could plausibly make my band big, but, uh, but I was able to have him, cross paths at a party or two uh i would like to hold all of the question time but uh but 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 if there's anything that you'd, that you'd want to throw back at me uh then i was well feel free yeah no totally i well i loved i i mean i one thing i enjoy about the book is well it's I, you mentioned seniors you know the brian eno concept and it's mm. it's cool because i always i always i was aware of that concept and i've always loved it but i always just thought of it as just seniors meaning like a group of people and when I read Utopia Avenue it really brought home it's not just the people it's it's the environment which you were mentioning you know earlier on just now in the conversation but it goes beyond even just the ecosystem but almost just like the sensory environment and I loved I loved you know and when I was looking back through it before we're talking to you today I noticed it even more like the amount of 
sounds that happen in your books even already you know just like in a scene when people are walking about talking walking down the street you really it's like a three-dimensional world not just sounds it could be somebody will uh, you know by some some description of people walking by or something but I, I i could feel you creating a sonic environment that those people are in and yeah. whether and maybe and even just even if imagining it through like the van the broken down van they're driving or so i don't know it's not really a question but i'm so, sure. curious about uh, that process of creating a three-dimensional world beyond just a you know a narrative and a dialogue uh it's a principle and I'm, it's probably taught in many a creative writing class uh we when you're creating a scene uh you need a a where you need a place for the scene to happen in how do you do that uh the obvious sense is the visual one um uh sight being the sense which uh a disproportionate amount of our brain voltage is spent on you can see i'm not neurologist but you can but you see the point I'm trying to get to. However, it, it, it is far from the only sense. And I find that scenes that are too vision dependent, uh, uh, well, yeah, they lack the dimension of uh, multi-sensoriness. So I, before I get to the end of a substantial scene, I also like to work out, if you were here, what could you hear? What could you smell? Mm. Um, is there any touch going on? Um, just what's kind of what's the, what's the emotional sense? What's the mood of the room? Um, the colours, of course, although that's visual, but uh, sure, the sound, especially uh, in a book about musicians to whom that sense, actually more than the visual one, is probably where they creatively, imaginatively, imaginatively live more than the other senses. Uh, so I never don't pay attention to that. Um, I always like to think, if you were here, what could you hear? Um, then, of course, there's, well, the three main songwriting characters in the band from whose point of view we experience most of the book. Uh, Elf, my Sandy Denny-ish uh, keyboard playing uh, woman in the band, and Dean, the sort of working class East End boy, pub rock bassist and finally Jasper uh, a, a public school boy which of course in the UK means a private school boy confusingly um, with 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 Anglo-Dutch um, quasi-aristocratic backgrounds and leanings they're all very different people um, why are people different for a, 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 a near infinity of, of reasons but one is how they perceive things, uh, maybe which is that dominant sense. Um, this feeds into it. So I wanted my uh, Dean, Elf and Jasper chapters, just like their songs, to be really different. I mean, uh, mm. God help the world if I ever tried to write a song, but it would certainly be different to songs written by your good self uh, because, because we are, because they mm. come from who we are, and of course, we're all individuals. So Jasper in particular, um, if he were around now, I think he'd be getting a, a diagnosis of Asperger's pretty quickly, I think. And as often happens on the autistic spectrum, uh, and I know what I speak uh, because of my son, um, sensory input can, well, it, 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 it's, it's not neurotypical. Uh, it, very often isn't neurotypical, um, uh, which is why the experience of being in a brain wired that way is different to uh, uh, neurotypical brain. And so I wanted to kind of turn that dial all the way up to 11, especially for Jasper, uh, to try to show or just give this, the reader a sense, but ever discussing this, but to give the reader a sense of how he is over bombarded by sound, by smells, by by um, emotional um, uh, conundrum. 
problems, which to you and I would be ordinary social um, or moments of social interaction. But for him, it's a constant Rubik's Cube that he knows he isn't quite doing right. So uh, so that's why I guess when you read his chapters in particular, uh, that would be heightened. Um, now, um, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd like to um, just throw one question back at you, Sam, which is as short as my last one was long. Uh, I just want to see what you say in response to it uh, before we go into the second song and questions. But um, my question is just four words long. What is a song? What is a song? What is a song? Oh my goodness. It's a, it's a, it's a melody, some words and a little feeling. <laughs> I wish I had more than that, but that would be my answer. I don't know what you find. What is a song? You, uh, you can you answer. <laughs> um, we could go short form. We could go, but I bet we could go long form as well. Uh, hmm. You said it's feeling. It's a special form. It's true because of course we, you know, it's not a poem. It's not. It's you know, it's it's its own little. It's its own world, for sure. Your answer's expanding. <laughs> by the qualification it's getting an extra dimension each time first it was just a feeling now it's its own little world uh what are the rules of this world uh what's this world like what's what what's it like from the inside that's a great question i wish i, I i'd love to think about that i mean i think it's just that that it's so it's the environment it's the environment that the music creates you know to bring the story to life that that the words the words tell the story but the music you know puts it in the root but gives it the space around it gives it not the space around it but casts it in terms shifts it in any direction in terms of the meaning at a different moment so a song is a world that contains a story yeah but not necessarily a story story but a story you know some sort of story so a bit like fiction it might be an emotional arc and it's the arc that's important more than the, uh, depending on the song, uh, more than the who did what to whom when. Yeah, I, it's, I'm trying to think of like favorite songs and what they, you know, what they do. Yeah. What, I, I, but it's, yeah, it could be either, it could be any of those things. We could come back and do another uh, Zoom entirely about this question, maybe. And, uh, and I think it's like a miniature world. A miniature world would be mine. If, if okay. I was going to go for a, a, yeah. a more abstract answer, I'd say it's a miniature world. Uh, yesterday, uh, uh, I, I just got back on holiday, and when you said miniature world, you made me think of a model railway over on the Dingle Peninsula that I saw it's going to be walking around yes. like a Gulliver and and, 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 and there's little houses and little definitely trains driving around it well uh thank you for your um uh your treatment uh your very gracious treatment of my hideously unfair question that I lobbed at you um wait I have one little uh, thing speaking to of Two what seconds. is a song oh yeah go, yeah, go on no, uh, uh, Brian Brian Wilson called them pocket symphonies, which is which is great. Pocket symphonies. Oh, that is cool. Uh, well, uh, a song. So uh, maybe I could introduce this next song. Um, this, I believe, is called Mona Lisa Sings the Blues. That's uh, correct. And uh, Sam wrote this from a set of lyrics. So uh, my US publisher asked me to write all of the lyrics to all of the songs on the first album there's about three that are in the book that utopia avenue make uh but uh but but well, we uh decided uh that we would do all of them as a sort of a, a freebie for people who pre-ordered the hardback of uh, this book which i'm not sure if i mentioned it or not utopia avenue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh i showed them to sam just to see am i making a hideous fool of myself here or, or, or kind of might these pass and uh, very graciously, uh, one set of lyrics, which is a song by Elf, Elf Holloway, the keyboard player, uh, who's also pretty handy uh, with folk guitar as well. Uh, Sam set these to music, and this is what you're about to hear for the first time on the planet. Play it, Sam. Mona Lisa sings the blues. Play it again. Press the button. By lyrics by Elf Holloway from Utopia Avenue. Chestnut tree 
Why do men define what a woman ought to be? His lover and his mother, his angel and his fist. And when we can't be everything, guess whose fault that is? Me and Mona Lisa sings the blues. That's why Mona Lisa sings the blues. now we have from all these beautiful people hey. with us today. Let me see what we have. Here's one from Craig. Can you let us, let, us, let us know whether you listen to music when you're writing? Good question. And if so, do you use it to tap into an emotional state that helps you focus on a particular part of the narrative you are writing? Well, Craig, uh, yes. Yes, I do. Uh, in fact, yes to both of those parts. I can't really start a writing session without music. That music generally needs to be instrumental or at least in a language that I have no knowledge of, which luckily is most of them. Uh, but so um, I can't listen to anyone singing in English basically and, and, and one or two other languages as well. Um, then if I am after a particular emotional state, I'm going to have a hard time thinking of a single example here, but uh, if there is a song that is entirely that, then, uh, then yeah, I think it works. Uh, I put these on and I try to kind of steep myself um, in that emotion like a tea bag. Uh, I'm the water, the song's a tea bag, and I kind of let it brew. And hopefully, uh, yeah, that sometimes works. So thank you, Craig. That's that question. Uh, I could expound at greater length, but we're overrunning a little bit already. So on with the show. Here's a question from uh, another Sam. He's wondering, he said, I've been listening to a lot of music from 1967 since reading Utopia Avenue, especially Love's Forever Changes, which is a great record. And he asked what yeah, yeah, our yeah. favorite albums from the year 1967 are. So oh. I think I would say Axis Bold is Love because um, my Jimi Hendrix obsession is showing at the moment. Sure, sure. Um, so it's a Sergeant Pepper's year, isn't it? Uh, I bet get my discography 
bang on, I think, for for Sam, because he clearly knows his stuff. Uh, 67. Uh, look, I'm going to go for Sergeant Peppers. Uh, it's, wow. it, it, it's, it, it's so novelistic. Uh, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's, it's set a template for so much that came on. So it, it isn't an original or, or, or Sometimes those answer, are the one. yeah, yeah. Here's a beautiful oh, question from Peter S. You touch on several really important issues in this book around grief, anxiety, and the stigma around mental health problems. The way you incorporate them into the story feels very effortless and real. Do you personally feel that it's important to include these issues in your story and why? Thank you. Um, what we call mental illness is a part of the human condition it has been with us forever and probably always will be uh how we think of mental illness of course evolves uh hopefully luckily for the better um and maybe we're moving towards we are moving towards something of a more diverse landscape and i think as this happens uh stigma will will subside um I've got a good friend who lives with schizophrenia. He's a fascinating man, and and uh, and I'm very close to him. Uh, and he's taught me a lot um, about that particular condition. Um, my son is autistic, and he's he's taught me so much more than uh, I've uh, I, I have and could ever teach him uh, about many things but of course uh as they say on the journey uh you can't but learn a lot about autism so these things are are even if i don't uh even if they are not resident in this skull uh particularly they uh, in particular they are or directly they are resident in my life and so this naturally feeds into my work maybe i'm a little bit evangelical uh, as well, particularly in the case of autism, because that's the one I do feel that I know uh, most about. Um, I can't change the fact of autism, but um, so many of the challenges that arise in being autistic arise from neurotypicals, people's ignorance of it. We aggravate it all the time. We don't know we're doing it. Uh, we have the best of intentions most of the time, uh, but we make it worse. Now, with luck um, in a novel, even if I just reach a few people and maybe make them think about autism in perhaps a slightly more illuminated way, uh, then I feel I have something of a, of a responsibility of a responsibility to do that uh, because of my domestic situation. So I hope that's a reasonable answer. Uh, it deserves a longer one, but uh, let's jump on, Sam. Here's a question from China M. Hi, David. Which books by other writers have you discovered that do manage that difficult task of writing about music and communicating its magic? Oh. Um, Jennifer Egan, uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Uh, Daisy Jones and the Six which is a novel I just came across recently actually after I'd finished Utopia Avenue and I'm ever so sorry but the author's name has just flown from my head maybe someone can supply it in the comments I feel like a fool because I read it about three weeks ago and it's great but uh, the uh, the author's name's gone I'm really sorry uh, um, Taylor Jenkins Reid thank you thank I you hey um, I like I, actually my favourite Salman Rushdie novel is, is his rock and roll novel. There's lots of other things going on in the book as well, but he, he wrote a book and a set of lyrics. So I'm in his footsteps in this respect, uh, called The Ground Beneath The Ground Beneath Her Feet. On the whole, though, fiction seems to have a hard time with music. Uh, and it's the uh film obviously film obviously has an inbuilt advantage because it comes with speakers and you can hear it. Uh, so that's not really dancing about architecture. It's more like <laughs> dancing about dancing <laughs> well, architecture about architecture. Uh, it's, it's the memoirs. It's the memoirs I enjoy. Uh, even when they're sort of maybe more unintentionally revealing than the authors might've intended to be like Keith Richards book. 
uh, I've read a lot. And uh, even the downright awful ones are actually helpful. Uh, so it tends to be memoir and biography and autobiography. There's a great Leonard Cohen one um, by Sylvie Simmons, I think, mm. uh, called, called I'm Your Man. Uh, I really enjoyed that. So on the whole, I'd actually gravitate more towards the non-fiction shelves than uh, than the fiction ones, just in terms of the number that you can find. Thank you, China, for that question. Onwards, uh, if there are any more. Or, oh, sure. Yeah, let's go to um, uh, Stephen H. This is a good one. What would you think if someone adopted the Utopia Avenue moniker and started creating music inspired by the titles <laughs> and characters? Plagiarism or oh. true? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was in the back of my mind that if you put lyrics out into the world, it's not impossible, this will happen. Uh, I'll just hide behind my agent and do what he says, basically, <laughs> let him be the bad guy. Uh, um, I think at an informal, just for fun level, uh, I'd have no problem at all and I'd feel um, honoured and flattered. Uh, of course, once money starts getting involved in this world it's get more complicated but let's not go there basically <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll do a kind of a body swerve <laughs> and uh move on <laughs> there's one more question here it says sure. what are your top three utopia avenue songs from what you wrote about them what were the songs you wish you could actually listen what are the ones you actually wish you could listen to oh beautiful um oh thank you that's such a meta uh, I know. That's such a meta question, isn't it? Uh, asking me that. I would like to hear uh, Jasper's song, Dark Room, which I wrote the lyrics for, which I really like, which, which uh, I can't share here because of the format, but uh, I'd like to hear that one. Uh, I'd like to well, choose one by Elf. Um, well, we've already heard uh, Mona Lisa sings the blues, so so that's actually ineligible because, of, uh, because it exists. Uh, courtesy of Mr. Amidon. Um, one from the second album. Um, there's there's a solo, uh, there's an instrumental one called um, Even the Bluebells, which I won't, won't, which I won't uh, divulge too much because I don't want to give any spoilers away, but it's maybe the book's saddest moment. And it's from, uh, uh, it's from a line of Rosemary Sutcliffe, uh, the author of uh, Eagle of the Ninth. Uh, Even the Bluebells lasted longer. Uh, and uh, yeah, I won't tell you a thing about what happens, but uh, I, I kind of like to hear that. And one of Dean's, um, uh, he wrote a song called The Hook, and I'd like to hear his song, The Hook. This is the first one off the second album. Uh, we'd like to answer that, Sam. Are there anything that you'd like to hear? Oh man, I, oh, oh. I, would, I just want to hear uh, Jasper's guitar playing. That's what I want to yeah, that would be like just yeah. and I and I had great fun answer. while we were well, and there were some great descriptions in there as well. But I had great fun imagining that while I was reading. Well, uh, we might not be able to hear his guitar playing, but I believe we can hear effortless segue. Uh, Sam's banjo playing is the next one. Yes. Yeah. Great. Um, this is going to be our uh, end song. So if we were in the cinema this would what uh, this would be what you'd hear uh, after the fantastic uh, climax uh, of the final scene uh, so this could be a good point to say goodbye and to thank everyone for zooming in uh, sam it's well, been a pleasure thank absolutely. you so much so uh, great, David. Uh, and i'm going to tell all these beautiful people who are here with us today that if you don't have a copy of utopia avenue right next to you you the mean this best, one? <laughs> as David does, the best way to achieve it is one of those blue buttons down at the bottom of your screen. Oh, you bless you. Supporting the festival as well as everything else. And Same there's here. a donut that, uh, donate button. Don't, I wish there was a donut. There's a donate button down there as well for the festival, which is doing such a beautiful job. Good to speak with you all. Good to speak with you, David. I'll do a Thank song you, to play and, now. Um, I'll do an Arthur Russell song, Lucky Cloud. cloud your sky a little rain a lot of fun one yeah kissing i go overboard lucky cloud your sky a little rain a lot of fun one yeah
focus and I go overboard. Lucky cloud, your sky, a little rain, a lot of fun. Kissing a girl overboard, a lucky cloud, your sky, a little rain, a lot of fun, yeah. Kissing a girl overboard. I will find more to see, I will see more to find. It's a two-way street, a two-way street. The more I look ahead, the more I see behind. Lucky cloud or sky, a little rain, a lot of fun, fun yeah. Kissing I go overboard. Lucky cloud or sky, a little rain, a lot of fun, fun yeah. Kiss and I go overboard. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.